Welcome to Podcastica Patristica. I'm Tyler Stanley here with Jake Robbie. Jake Robbie here. We're here to uh, give you a guide through St. Augustine's City of God. This is our first of 11 parts, and uh, City of God is broken up into smaller books that are about maybe 40 to 50 pages each, and we will take two books per session. So you'll get 11 of these, and it's going to be sort of like a Cliff's Notes version. We'll give you some background and a summary of what Augustine is doing in this passage. So if any of you are in school and you have to read this, uh, just listen to this so you don't actually have to read the book. Right, right. Save you a lot of time. Yeah. We read so you don't have to. Yep, that's our job. So let's get started. We'll talk a little bit about some background leading up to this. Augustine is at this point responding to the sack of Rome in 410, and he begins writing this. Do you know the exact date that he begins writing? It's a good bit of time later. It's okay. several years after that happened. Yeah. The Visigoth Alaric had attacked Rome and taken it, and uh, the fighting continues for quite some time. I think it's a couple decades that it's just continuous <laughs> sparring and trying to take control. Some of it was happening in Africa when uh, Augustine wrote this, which is probably what prompted him to actually start writing. Which, Augustine is the Bishop of Hippo, which is down in North Africa. So Augustine writes City of God. It's a really large book. He's covering a lot of topics, but primarily what he's thinking about here is what seem to be the responses of some more educated, cultured, sort of classical Roman pagans, but also probably some wealthier Christians who are saying this also, that the reason that Rome is having such trouble, that Rome, the city, was able to be sacked by the Visigoths, was that Christianity, basically Christianity was the reason that Rome had fallen, that Rome had forsaken the classical gods that had made Rome great, and because of that, the gods were now punishing Rome by allowing it to be overtaken and declining. Uh, so I think at its core, City of God is a sustained sort of argument against that idea, um, and to argue against that, he's going to get into a long discussion of something we might call ecclesiology or church-state relationship, but essentially answer no to the question of is the conversion of the empire to Christianity the reason why Rome is now falling. So Augustine opens up straight off discussing divine retribution and whether God punishes people for not acting right and rewards people for acting wrong and asks the question, well, what about the fact that, you know, bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? So it seems at the start to be just kind of rambly and kind of my question as I read this was, how is this setting up for anything in the future? Like, I know this book, City of God, deals with like church-state relations to some extent, and I'm just wondering how does how is this relevant? And it seems that in book one, Augustine is, like Jake said, uh, arguing against this idea that Christians are to blame for the fate of Rome because Christians forbid worshiping the Roman gods. And so Augustine's question is, would these gods have really saved you? Yeah, so he's answering that in a couple of different ways. He's bringing up this problem, this question of um, would all this be avoided if 
Roman culture by and large was still worshipping the old classical gods. And I think there's two ways, especially in book one and into book two, that he's <clears throat> saying no to that. The first that you'll see come up over and over again if you're reading this is um, he's noting that a lot of the people that are now complaining that Christianity is the reason for the downfall of Rome survived the sack of Rome because apparently they fled to uh, the churches on the outskirts of the city and were able to sort of live as refugees there. Uh, the Visigoths apparently spared people who were in the churches, so apparently a lot of people, Christian and not, took shelter there. So I think this is immediately a kind of irony that Augustine is pointing out as you're saying that Rome has fallen because of Christianity, but when the Visigoths came in, Ultimately, you ran to you ran to churches, you ran to monasteries, you ran to these sorts of places. Yeah, and he calls out. Not only does he call out the hypocrisy of running to the church for salvation and then blaming the church for Rome's destruction, he also talks about the fact that throughout history, you've never seen Roman or Greek temples used in this way. They weren't shelters for. You know, like when the Greeks are attacked, if they run to their temples, their attackers just slaughter them in their temples and plunder their gods and take them back with them. And in this case, Augustine is using this as an example of God's providence and saving power that he spared some of you, so you should be thanking the true God. And, you know, your gods wouldn't have done this. They never did it before. And he points out, I think... Um probably drawing back to some Christian influence on the Visigoths so that even the Romans themselves wouldn't spare people who fled into temples. Um, that was never their custom. So I think already he's trying to point out something unique in Christianity that's not present in this sort of classical Roman religion. Um, so he makes that case according to the sort of people fleeing as refugees, uh, and then he makes it according to... Uh, he sort of enters in from the Roman tradition itself and starts to talk about why this sort of, um, <clears throat> why even the, the Roman religious culture shows that it's not true that the people would be safe if they were still worshipping the classical gods. And he pulls up things like uh, the the founding of Rome in Virgil's Aeneid, where Rome is sort of founded out of these refugees fleeing from Troy after it's fallen, picking up the story at the end of uh, Homer's Iliad. And he's trying to show that throughout Roman history, it, it just doesn't make sense to say the sort of height of classical Roman god worship that Rome was safe and without attack and he's saying from the very beginning in your own legends that's just not the case that you started from the sack right of, of a Greek city and, right yeah. the gods didn't save you from that first attack mm -hmm. they haven't saved you throughout your history okay so why do bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people here you're gonna get basically classic Augustinian thought, the stuff that is uh, not very popular in a lot of circles nowadays, um, unless you're reformed, like Gerhard. Man, I'm glad he's not here. <laughs> so Augustine says what you would expect Augustine to say. I mean, he says that when good people experience suffering, it's purification that there is still part of us that uh, even if there's no apparent reason why we're suffering, there's still something that can be purified. There's still something within us that we need to repent of. And uh, the reason that good things happen to bad people is that God can't just pour out all of his wrath on these people in the here and now because people need to see that 
there is a good to hope for that in seeing that good in this life, maybe they'll hope for it and look for it and ultimately find God. So he several times quotes the passage from scripture where it says, uh, God sends the rain on the just and the unjust alike. It's kind of his way of dealing with this massive question of suffering and whether you like his answer or not, that's the presumption that he starts with to start this book. Uh, and I think it makes sense in his larger concern for uh, does the sort of downfall that he's seeing in Roman society, uh, that Rome is becoming militarily weaker, it's losing territory, there's this sort of feeling of cultural decay or sort of moral decay. Uh, and he's trying to show why none of this stuff necessarily negates any christian theological claims yeah um and then i think he's also trying to go and show why this would still be the case and probably in his thought more the case if it weren't for christianity um if we were still under the the classical roman gods and book two uh, is going to pick up that question a lot yeah. but after discussing this idea of suffering he acknowledges the fact that you know holy people are suffering in this context People are being murdered, women are being um, taken and raped by their captors, and he attempts to address these, and in reading it from our 21st century, more sensitive perspective, his answers seem a bit disturbing, because he says that, these, that some women, after being sexually assaulted, they commit suicide, or even before, you know, if they see it coming, they'll commit suicide. Um, and he says, we can understand, we can, as much as we can, we can empathize and understand why they would do such a thing. Um, living with this is difficult, to say the least. Um, but they shouldn't kill themselves because killing yourself is murder. And... If you're innocent, such as these women who were attacked, then they shouldn't commit murder to in response to another person's evil. That person should be judged and condemned, not the woman who was attacked. But he, I, I think in his way and in his context, he is doing this as a way to console these women, to say this shameful thing isn't yours to bear in the sense that you are not guilty, your life is still worth living, you are still a person of virtue. Uh, do you have anything to add on that? Nothing on that note. Okay. Yeah, pretty well. So, is there anything else we need to say about book one? I think covered it pretty well. Um, concerned with um, pointing out the hypocrisy in these um, individuals that have fled to Christian churches to escape um escape the destruction of rome now criticizing christianity he's talking about sort of what a christian response to these events might look like and he's anticipating these critiques that he's going to make in chapter two about maybe why the larger state of roman moral culture as it's related to these in this ancient roman religion um, might be creating some of these problems in the first place all right book two of city of god uh, so in this book, Augustine gets more into the history and religion of ancient Rome. He gets back to this question of, would your 
gods, your old gods, have saved you? Could they have saved you? Um, is there any indication that they cared enough to do so? And also, he gets to the idea of Rome's fall and why it has fallen, and turns it back on those who are accusing Christians, and says, it's not that Christians didn't allow you to worship your gods. It's that your gods have no morals. Yeah, so I mean, think back to what you know about sort of Greco-Roman mythology, um, and try to identify like a good, admirable god or goddess within that system. And it's a pretty difficult thing to do, which is a large part of uh, Augustine's point here, is what, you know... What, asking what type of virtue are the gods bringing about in their worshippers and saying that it's probably not anything that you want um, or anything that would be helpful to you in this ancient Greek and Roman religion. The gods are, you know, human-like. They're, they're petty. They're angry. They're violent. They're incestuous. They're rapists. The, the gods never really command their followers to do anything good or admirable or worthy, they instead command them to basically remember and enact their own um, vile deeds. So he's thinking here really about the theater, uh, which if you've read Augustine or if you go on to read Augustine, you'll see that he takes up this issue a lot across lots of work. That uh, The theater for him is a sort of locus where the Romans have been sort of putting on these shows to show these stories in the lives of the god, and they're usually about, again, uh, a god committing a violent act, a god committing a, a rape, a god abusing someone or another god in some way. Uh, and he's saying, if if this is the kind of god that exists in Roman culture, that's revered by Roman culture, what sort of morals is that god going to put forward, and why should we think that that's going to produce a healthy society? Yeah. And he pulls this really fun rhetorical move and talks about, well, first he says that these gods never gave law. Like they, Christians have um, a moral code that they can look to, something authoritative to say this is what it looks like to live a good life. Like Jake said, the gods, the Roman and Greek gods never did this. They just, Greeks and Romans just retold the stories, which are bad stories. But, but, Augustine talks about the playwrights and the actors and how these, uh, or poets, what he called the playwrights, uh, these poets loved to mock both the gods and people, and people in their own context. Uh, they loved to mock politicians and kind of the righteous people of the day, and Augustine says, you know, they mock the people that no one likes, you know, the traitors and people in society that are, you know, the bad guys. But they also mock the virtuous people. And that's why Rome put a ban on slander. They wouldn't allow the poets to mock people, humans. The Greeks allowed it, uh, but the Romans thought we're too, we're, that's not very respectful. We are too high above this. And yet... They still put on these plays about the gods. And these plays are telling these awful stories about the gods being terrible beings who are, like Jake said, petty and incestuous and rapists. And so essentially Augustine says, 
These are your examples. This is your moral compass. These gods are not even held to the standard of your own people. You think that you're too high to be mocked, that it's too, you know, above your sensibilities to be mocked, but you'll allow it for the gods. And if that's who you worship, then what do you expect for your society except for it to crumble into moral decay? It is actually acting or writing here along with a sort of long line in Greek and Roman tradition of thought about the the gods and their relationship to sort of public morality and some of the problems therein. You know, if you read uh, the Iliad, it's a deeply pessimistic text when it comes to its theology of humans are very often sort of caught in the crossfire of these petty squabbles between gods. Um, <clears throat> if I'm not mistaken, the popular Roman backstory to the Iliad was the, the war between, is it um, Sparta and Troy? Uh, Sparta and Troy, right? Or am I? I don't Athens and Troy. <laughs> Anyways, the, the, the war that the Iliad has recounted initially started because of three goddesses arguing about which one was the most beautiful, and it shows this sort of dissatisfaction. And if you read closely in the Iliad, you'll note Homer starting to even push back on the concept of this sort of pantheon of gods that we look to to... <laughs> move to almost a more atheistic or agnostic type of society in the Iliad of the gods are not beings that we should emulate and we need to form a sort of social identity without that. And here Augustine brings in Plato to talk about this in book two when he brings up how in um, Republic when Plato's talking about his ideal city one of the first things he does in his ideal city is kick out all of the uh, all of the playwrights and all of the poets and all of the um, musicians um, because he sees them as, like Tyler's already talked about, adding to this sort of immoral culture by telling people this is what the gods are like. So for Plato, the ideal Greek state would be one where uh, you didn't have any of this sort of pantheon that people are saying we need to go back to to inculcate society and bring back the sort of morality that will keep Rome from falling. And it's funny, Augustine in that section says that you know, in traditional mythology, you have the heroes on one level, and then above them you have the demigods, and Augustine says that he would put Plato even above the demigods, not even to speak of the heroes, just to say how little he thinks of these gods, who he eventually describes as demons. And Augustine, I think, really does believe these are demonic beings um, who are misleading the people of Rome and Greece. So Augustine is going to have this um, this debate and sort of ultimately try and say why Christianity, he thinks, is better at producing public morality than classical Roman religion. That probably comes across as somewhat offensive to us today in a context that is significantly more mindful of these sort of interfaith discussions and doesn't like to put things as which religion is the best. Um, so maybe it's helpful to take a step back and think about the larger kind of moral point that Augustine is making. And I think the the key point here for Augustine, and this has been picked up in modern writers like uh, James K. A. Smith and a lot of his works, is that Augustine is questioning how public morality comes to be formed. And he's saying that ultimately this synthesis of religion and popular culture is what's going to form uh, public morality he doesn't uh he doesn't quite think of them as super distinct because so much of 
like Roman poetry and writing and plays were religious in nature. Um, you know, they, there's not really a secular Roman identity. But he does think that um, these sort of myths about the people get acted out in uh, broader culture and that in, in plays and poems and books, uh, and that this starts to be habit-forming in the people, that the people look to their gods to decide what type of people they are. So Augustine thinks, and I think a lot of us would probably say rightly, that if the gods that you worship and go to the theater to see the um, the antics of our violent, murderous, misogynistic, you know, not admirable people, that then the Roman people are going to become violent, misogynistic, not admirable. Uh, and I think this is really the overarching point that he's trying to make, is the sort of moral decay comes out of how the culture thinks of itself. And the the thing that is the basis for the way the culture thinks of itself is their religion. And he says that the Roman religious figures are really encouraging the people not to act in these sort of admirable ways. Yeah. And so he, this ties into the whole concept of city of God versus the city of Rome or the city of earth. And he quotes this ancient thinker, uh, Scipio, who defines the commonwealth as the common wheel or the common prosperity of the community. And so the community is, it's not just any and every association in the population, but, quote, an association united by a common sense of right and a community of interest. So Augustine picks this up and kind of assumes, let's suppose this to be the case, there can be this community or commonwealth, you know, no matter what kind of government there is. Uh, it could be a monarch or a few aristocrats or a democracy. But he's, Augustine says, when the king is unjust, a tyrant, as he calls him, or the nobles are unjust, which he calls a faction, or if the people are unjust, which he says there's no specific term for that, but we might call it collective tyranny, he says then it's not the case that the commonwealth or the community is corrupt. Instead, it's that this community ceases to exist because there is no wheel of the community, prosperity of the community. Um, if it's unjust, then there is no community. Augustine goes on to say that if we're taking this definition to be true, then Rome itself has never been a community. It's never been a commonwealth because it's never had any sense of justice, no sense of right and wrong, because their gods, you know, their moral compass, have no moral compass. So he says, This true justice is found only in that commonwealth whose founder and ruler is Jesus Christ. So this is the city of God the only place where we can find a true community, true commonwealth, with a true sense of right and wrong. So probably uh, as you're going through this text, the first two books, and really the rest of City of God, uh, I think one of the most important and most difficult ideas to pick up on and follow Augustine on is going to be um, 
the relationship between what we would now call church and state, but those are kind of modern categories that don't fit really well with what Augustine is doing here. Um, he is not thinking that the church and the state are the same thing, and that the church is a political entity that controls land, and the church exists where, you know, Christendom has land. It's not that sort of Christendom idea. Uh, but at the same time, he's not thinking his church as a sort of group of people with privately held religious beliefs like we do today. Um, there's a really, really tangible kind of communal aspect to where he can talk about Rome as a religious society and the, the Christian aspects of society or the pagan aspects of society and really think that somehow a society can have a sort of religious sort of attunement to it. Uh, so I think that's the the question to keep in mind as you go through is, what's the relationship between people with religious beliefs and, or people and their religious beliefs, we should say, and the state, as Augustine is writing this? Uh, they're not totally distinct, um, but they're not, they're not the same thing. So just a quick recap of what we've learned in books one and two is pagans or non-Christian Romans are blaming Christianity for the sack of Rome. And they're claiming that if only we could have been worshiping our gods, this wouldn't have happened. And Augustine takes issue with that and says, no, your gods have no sense of morality, and a true unified city can't stand, really, without a unified sense of morality. And no human city has that. And so he invites us into the city of God. This concludes part one of our guide to St. Augustine's City of God. Stay tuned for part two, in which we will discuss and summarize books three and four. If you enjoy what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes and Facebook. While you're on Facebook, give us a like, and you can also find us on Twitter. Podcastica Patristica is sponsored by Patristica Press which is owned and operated by myself, along with Gerhard Steuben and Jake Robbie. So if you would like for Podcastica Patristica to continue, check out our bookstore at patristicapress.com and find anything you like, go ahead and buy it. Good news for you podcast listeners. Patristica Press has actually started another podcast called The Reformation Podcast, hosted by Gerhard Steuben and Jake Robbie. If you're interested in Reformation-era Christianity, give it a listen.